These podcasts have been made possible by funding from Country SA PHN. Welcome to the Mentally Fit EP and Me podcast, a show that connects you with stories of everyday people from across our peninsula. We believe that mental health is everyone's business. We're all about smashing stigmas and raising awareness so that people gain a sense of empowerment to live mentally well. Please note that at times some of our episodes may contain stories that could be deemed confronting. Please read the episode blurb to determine if this episode is right for you. And now, onto the show. Welcome back to our podcast. We're coming to you from Cummins today. Yay! Yay for Cummins! (laughs) So those of you who are not aware where Cummins is, it's kind of like up the middle of Air Peninsula. Yep. Not up the top, not down the bottom. Middle. The middle. We've got some gold for you today. We've got gold for you every episode, but today we are talking to someone who is quite well known in the community here, and we're really looking forward to the things that we are going to learn. Before we get started, we just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. We're coming from the Bungala region, and we um, acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. We usually come from Bungalow lands down in Port Lincoln, but quite a different terrain here, but equally as beautiful. Yeah, and I think also um, just to acknowledge, I believe that over towards the school is also the Nao lands. So in Cummins, we are a community that's got two lots, yeah, divided by the railway line, we think. So to acknowledge the Nao people as well today. But yeah, we're very lucky and very excited to welcome John Trelaw. Hi, girls. Hi. Thanks for coming. John, we're just going to call you JT. Is that okay? It's fine. Yep. So JT has very kindly agreed to come on the podcast today and just give his perspective about, you know, life in Cummins and growing up and, and also where he's ended up in his life doing some pretty great work in the suicide prevention area. Before we get into that, our listeners would love to hear a bit about you, JT, and what led you to this so you were born in Cummins yes I was yeah, born in the Cummins hospital wow back when they were allowed to have yes, babies yes when they were allowed <laughs> to have babies there yes that would be what 20 years ago oh a good 20 <laughs> a good 20 no 1965 so I'm 56 and a half and I've been here all my life except for five years in Adelaide at schooling I left school and came back here to farm I've been here ever since and um, what was your experience of going away to school after growing up in Cummins um, it was something of an adventure really we didn't have a lot of idea of what to expect to be honest it was something my parents did and we were given the opportunity and I'm probably reflecting back on it now could have done better when I was away (laughs) for the opportunity my parents gave me and Mm -hmm. but it's just a great experience to have a different outlook on life outside Cummins and whilst Cummins is a great town and place to live in and bring your family up in and be brought up in there's certainly other things you need to experience as a teenager I think it it sets you up better later in life to see a few of those things that I wouldn't have seen if I'd stayed in Cummins for my senior schooling. Was there an expectation from your parents that you would always come back on the farm or was that an opportunity for you to experience other things to then figure out for yourself what you wanted to do? They really left it up to me as to what I wanted to do and we've tried to do that with our children as well. It, you know, It's your choice, it's not ours and the farm or farming was there for me if I wanted to come back to it and I probably decided at the end of year 11 that's what I was going to do so I didn't focus as well as I should have academically. <laughs> I just went through the process basically. Uh, of of the year of the five years made some great friends had a good time really it's a it's a great it's experience yeah it is <laughs> it's about boarding as well you're living with a hundred other boys that are isolated from their family and their parents and they're going through the same things you are and same emotions and there was no mobile phones there was no internet there was one pay phone on the wall for sixty boys to either ring their parents or their parents to ring them and. Wow. That's that's how we did it. My mother used to write us letters every week and we were expected to write to them, but we didn't. <laughs> well, that's quite lovely that yes. she wrote to you every yep. week. She wrote like, to us every week. She found a way to connect with you guys when yep. she couldn't connect like we do normally. No, but now I would text my children two or three times a day, especially the ones that aren't here, yep. just to you know, keep them up and about and make sure they're happy and going okay and everything's all right with them. Sometimes I get accused of overdoing it, but I, li- <laughs> I like to stay in touch. <laughs> really? Texts, they create that instant conversation, don't they? Because, you know, these days if we sent a letter, it'd be like, oh, that's old news, you know. We knew that it rained last week. Yes. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> whereas now we've got that real-time information mm. all the time. I wonder how, um, you know, before we turn the microphones on, we were talking about COVID. 
um, and the impact of COVID. Like, how are the kids going over in Adelaide at the moment with what's going on? It's really difficult for them being in a boarding house because it's classified as a home or as a house. Yeah. And if you put 100 plus children in a small area, there's always someone that's going to be contagious with COVID. And by the time they realise that person is positive, they've probably spread it to two or three other boys or girls. So we every week we would get two or three emails from each of the boarding houses. And that's the same with every boarding house in Australia to saying our children have been a close contact and they have to test to stay. So they rat test for seven days straight and they are not allowed to play sport or go to sports trainings and they're not allowed to go into the big environments, they're not allowed into the city, they're not allowed to interact with other year groups or age groups in the school. So it's pretty hard on them really and you think, I mean... The oldest son's in year 12 and he's done three years in Adelaide at boarding school and every year has been with tough COVID restrictions. Uh, It's hard on them because they're missing out on their mates, they're growing up, their parties, going to the footy or the netball or the cricket with, you know, groups of 20 or 30 of them and having pizza nights and stuff like that. So they're missing out on that. So it is hard on them. I've been reflecting a bit on that and thinking about when I look back to my late teens, early 20s, how fun that was and I keep thinking, oh, they're missing out on all of that. But I guess for them... This is normal. Like they've never had. They don't know anything else. Yeah, they else. don't know different. No. So I think that these young people coming through will be a really resilient bunch. You know, they will be able to adapt to the unknown, yeah. hopefully. And it's, as they said, they're not the only ones missing out. They're all missing out together. It's not like they're the single ones not doing it. It's their whole cohort is missing out on things. And it's the same when there was no sport here two, two years ago. Yeah. For locally, it was, there was no sport for anyone. So it wasn't just my children that weren't playing sport. It was everyone's children that weren't playing sport. So we just kept the family talks going and said, you know, we're all in this together. We'll make it work. And there'll be some tough times, but... We'll reflect back on this and it'll probably make us all stronger. Absolutely. Sport's obviously been a, played a big role in your life. Uh, yeah, well, I've always been around it. It's, it's what you did when you were a kid, obviously. It's just played sport. There weren't the choices when I was growing up here. It, like Winter was football, summer was netball. Uh, sorry, winter was football or netball for the boys or girls and summer was tennis or cricket. And mm-hmm. once you got to 32, you stopped playing <laughs> tennis with Bert Pacor <laughs> and you played bowls. Yeah. That's just what you did. Everyone at, did it. At 32? Yeah, well, that was about when you stopped playing tennis. A few people played older and longer, but a lot of people stopped in their mid to early 30s and then just parked at the bowling green instead of the tennis courts. And, and was that mainly due to injuries or not being selected anymore? Oh, there was an <laughs> abundance of people around back then. There was lots mm. of people. That, there were stock agents, there was bank managers, there were school teachers, that, and they all lived in the town. And a lot of them had family. So the parents played the sport, the kids played the sport, and they just all went everywhere together. And now there's just not, there's not as many people around now as there used to be to fill those sports teams as you see with the attrition of football and netball teams or whole clubs dropping out or amalgamating and it's just the way of the, f- the world at the moment. And so you're a sports trainer? I am still. How long have you been doing that for? Well, I played football till I was 25 and had some injuries that I couldn't continue to farm with or work with, so I stopped playing sport. Had a couple of years at the golf course and then I realised I was missing out on the Saturday afternoon friendship with my friends. Mm-hmm. So I went back to be a sports trainer and that was 25 years, 27 years ago or something. That's uh, good. It keeps you involved and it keeps you at a level where you can contribute to your club and be around the kids and that adults and see them enjoy things and see them be disappointed so I mean I've seen some great things on footy and netball and I've seen some sad stories and it's as, as I've moved into the suicide prevention network side of things you're more conscious of the the negative things that happen on a sporting arena like football or netball mm-hmm. the kids that miss out or the kids that you know don't do so well and not as gifted as other children or things like that. And other ones that I've been more aware of going forward, especially because it's not all about strapping the ankle or the thumb. It's There's mental side to it as well. Um, not every child is as gifted as the other one and you've got to run with that. And that's sometimes hard on them and on us and then on their parents. Yeah. It is. I think it's really important to acknowledge those people as well that, you know, they do show up every week. And I think sometimes there's a real focus on the elite. So, you know, the A graders of netball and footy, they're pretty amazing. And I'm not taking that away from them at all. But, you know, it's the people that show up every week and and they do help in the canteen or they do become the trainer or you can never, never forget the value of those people. That They're just as equal as those elite people. Yeah, I've always said at our football club, the most important five players are your last five players in your lowest team, in your B grade team. Because they're the ones that are there making up your numbers so you can have a competition. 
and every club's got them. You need them. Your top 20, well, they look after themselves. So you're always going to have a game of A-grade football or A-grade netball or soccer or whatever. But it's the lower grades that can create most of the work for your administrators. Like, have we got enough numbers to play this competition today? Do we need to speak to the other coaches? How many numbers do they have? I think, too, that ties into a couple of years ago, we partnered with Empowering Lower Air Suicide Prevention Network, which is who JT is the chairperson of, um, the Cummins local SPN. And Mentally Fit EP and Empowering Lower Air and a couple of other groups came together to um, do the breakthrough mental health round for the football, uh, the local football league here. And I um, feel like that conversation was starting to happen in a lot of different clubs around, you know, yes, we all know who our A-grade best and fairest stars are, but who are the people within our clubs that are actually looking after people? And, you know, like starting to really encourage that conversation around there's more to a club than just being an amazing player. Like it's those people that look after the other people that are so important as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about your work that you're doing with Empowering Lower Air and, and how that sort of got started here in Cummins? Yep, well, you know as well as anyone, girls, how it started, but it was a group of 40 people at a meeting, public meeting, from all backgrounds, diverse backgrounds that came together, and when I saw the ad, I spoke to my wife, and I said, I probably should go to that, and she said, yep, you should go to that. We just, it was good, I, I probably got more out of it than I thought I was going to from the first meeting, and I knew there was enough enthusiasm there to continue with a group, and, and I was right, and we did have a good group, and I was really, not surprised, but pleasantly surprised with the enthusiasm within the group of probably 10 or 15 core people that wanted to make it happen and most of them are still there. It was long-winded and difficult to establish but it was worth it and I knew that our community needed it and there was a place for it and if we did a few of the hard yards as a group collectively we could get it up on the ground and we have. I reckon a really good result for our town and community and here we are now for five years later we've got A good group, and we've done. I think we've done some amazing things. I really do. A lot of them are quite little things behind the scenes that not everyone sees, but the public things that we've done are first class, absolutely first class. And when we go to conferences, it was a year ago, just last weekend, we were at the Port Lincoln Conference, I reckon the three Cs. Yeah. And nearly everything that was talked about down there that other groups either were doing or wanted to do, we were already doing at Cummins in our community. And it's all voluntary. The whole lot of it is done by people just with a passion to help other people because we've all seen the downside of people that aren't doing so well and I think that's what drives us all. Yeah, absolutely. And we're still going. I mean, we've been knocked around a bit. We've been shut down and we've had to wind our plans back time after time but we've always said, let's plan it. If it comes off, great. If it doesn't, if we have to stop doing it, well, so be it. We, we can't be disappointed that we had to cancel last month's Get Out Festival. We know we can do it again. We know we will do it again. But we'll just, we have to work within the rules and that's how we are. And I think society's got used to that over the last three years. Sadly, yeah. Mm, yes. <laughs> you said about passion driving the group and I think you can't have a group that goes from strength to strength without the passion. What do you think drives the passion in Cummins? I think if you look around, people drive through and they think, hmm, bumper crops, you know, everything looks pretty hunky-dory here, everything's going okay. So do you have an idea of where that passion comes from? I think our group is made up of lived experience. It's people that have been there, done that, seen that, or firsthand been affected by it. And they've all decided that, okay, it happened to me, or I've seen it happen, I want to help the next person that it's happening to. And we, we, we're realistic. We, we are not going to get the services in Cummins that we would love to have. They're slowly being withdrawn. Like I said, I was born in Cummins. You can't have a baby in Cummins now. It's too risky. You yeah. can, you know, it's high risk. So it's a group that just wants to contribute, I think. That's, that's how I've seen it anyway. Yeah, I would agree. I think when we all first came together in that first meeting, you could see pretty clearly, you could have almost identified the people that wanted to be involved from that first meeting just with how they spoke Mm. so passionately. And like you said before, JT, when we had to go through the process, like it's not a quick process to become a suicide prevention network and probably nor should it be. Like now that we've gone through that level of training and 
having to get off the ground, you realise if you were a bit half-hearted about it, you probably wouldn't see it through. No, and it's not for everyone. It's not easy at times. I said to a few people that my life would be easier if I didn't wasn't involved in it. Mm. Much easier, and so would yours, and so would yours, if, if you didn't choose this field. But you can either contribute or do nothing. Without being rude, doing nothing is the easiest option. But if you want to be involved and make a difference, like I said, we've all seen it and done it and been exposed to it. And I, I, that's why I'm involved, because I think I can make a difference to people's lives when they're vulnerable. Whether it's the kid with the sore thumb at football, that's you know there's nothing wrong with them, but you can help them through it. Or the person that's really in a dark place that you, know, you fear for them in the next 24, 48 hours. So to get the help for the child with the sore thumb is equally as important as getting the help for the whoever that's having bad thoughts. And we've done it. All three of us have been through it. And you don't want it to go to the worst-case scenario. And that's why we do it, I'm sure. Yeah, and I think the key word there is prevention. Mm. Yep. You know, we want to look upstream and see what we can, you know, where all three of us work in prevention, that's that's where we sit. Being able to look up and go, we don't want people to get to this point if we can help it. So, you know, by trying to do something before it gets to that point, that's our aim. Might be a good chance to talk about some of the things that you've done with Empowering Lower Air that people maybe haven't heard about. I think our public um, events have been our strengths, the way we've done them, the people we've attracted here, brought to the town and the community. The, the fact that we consciously take people to the school and get involved in the school has mm-hmm. been a charter for us since we started. As you would know, Em, we're, I'm passionate about the school because that's where it starts, I think, in the children. I know my children have had issues where they've either you know, felt ostracised or a bit bullied or there's things on their phones that I don't think they should be on there and I make sure that they haven't got anything on their phones that, you know, if I had to look at their phone, is it okay? Is there anything on there that is going to get you into trouble or make me cross? And that's the sort of things you've got to be careful of. And there's terrible things get transmitted by social media on telephones and that has a big impact on kids and adults as well. But I think those public events where we had Chris Blows and Chris Coff um, and Aaron Phillips, the three big ones, I would think, mm-hmm. they've all been feel-good stories and we've always been told also that we should concentrate on the hard facts. And we've taken a couple of, I can't remember his name, is it Matt Runnels? Matt Runnels, yeah. To yep. the school and it, that was difficult for me to listen to and that was difficult for a lot of the children at school to listen to. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure of the balance there. Whether it's worth taking those hard hitters in to talk to some of the children. I'm, I'm hoping that you get enough out of it to offset the negative side of it. But it's hard to measure that as well. You can't sugarcoat it. What we're talking about. And as you said before, prevention's the strong word we want to use. I don't like the word suicide. It's just as soon as you say it, that's it. That's the word. And everyone thinks, oh, that's it. That's the bad word. There's no other word to describe it. Mm. So it is what it is and I guess we just have to be big enough to keep saying the word and, and uh, running with it. I think awareness and education is is the key and I think that's why you know, you feel that the school is a really good place to take all these messages because you know how you were saying with those guest speakers you've had, so Chris Blows, you know, he lost a limb in a tragic, you know, freak shark attack and then the other Chris, you know, Mm. he was born without his limbs. So they're like physical things. Chris Blows was quite traumatic. Um, Obviously Chris was born with it so he doesn't know any different. But then when we talk about mental health, we're still in that in-between space where we're not entirely sure how things go off track. You know, and I think a lot of us live in fear because the way that people talk about mental health, I see plenty, because I follow a lot of mental health focused groups and pages on my social media, a lot of articles pop up. And one popped up this week and the headline was something around um, genetic factor being an issue for suicide. And I thought, oh my gosh, need to read this story. And then, you know, as you read the story, it basically said that there's the teeniest, tiniest little bit of evidence to say that potentially if someone else in your family has died by suicide, then there's a risk. So actually, it was almost like false reporting. And But what I see is people who have been affected by suicide then having that switch flicked in their head going, oh my gosh, I'm a really high risk. This is an issue for me. And I think that when we talk about it more and bring more awareness to how people became unwell, 
um, and what they do to to support their wellness, that is where the magic is. So, you know, we can't keep looking at, you know, this could just happen to you one day. Well, you know, like Emma said, there's so much we can do for prevention. Maybe if there was a genetic link, maybe people could use that as awareness and work really hard on Mm. not going down that track. It's like heart failure, I guess. Mm. You know, if someone in your family has had a heart condition, then you might do all you can to look after your heart. As long as we keep talking about it, and bringing up awareness there's so much that we can do to look after ourselves and don't you think with the amount of people that we've all heard speak so many of them say I have my rituals or I have my routines or my things that I just know I have to do and if I do those things I'm going to be okay like I feel like Maddie Kerno we had him come here he's just brilliant and inspiring and we did a really intimate little gathering with him. It was just people on beanbags and him talking about his experiences. But he was someone that sort of always said, you know, I had to cut out alcohol. I had to get a good night's sleep. I had to exercise. Um, he had a really solid diet, you know. And then you talk to somebody else who's been through some stuff and, and they're like, you know, this really helped me. So I, I made that part of my ritual or my routine. And I kind of feel that's a little bit where prevention sits too because that's stuff that we can control in our own lives. So it gives people a bit of control back of what they can contribute um, and how they can help themselves to to stay well. I'm not saying that it works for everyone all the time, but you know, if you can find those one or two things that you know is right for you and you implement them into your day-to-day life, like the actual difference that can make. And the problem with mental health is it's so vast. Two of the same people can have the same diagnosis but have a completely different week of experiences or day of experiences or month of experiences. Mm-hmm. And they don't know when they're going to be affected by it, anxiety. Or how long. Or how long it's going to last for. Mm-hmm. And one little external factor can make it a lot better or a lot worse. And that's the problem. If, if I've got asthma, I go to the hospital, I get treated for asthma. And it's the same as everyone gets treated for asthma, roughly. But if I've got a mental health problem, my mental health problem can be vastly different from the next person that walks through the door that has similar signs and symptoms but has a more complex or less complex case and quite often fear drives it as well they are are fearful that if they do go to hospital they might end up somewhere else Mm -hmm. that it might be just as easy to stay at home and ride it out and hopefully it goes away but a lot of the time it doesn't and I, i know you know people are suffering with current COVID and things like that but it's important to get help around you and have access to the help and we talked about at the school was having counsellors that talk to the whole class not just to the children that they think they should talk to so you have an opt-in policy where everyone gets the same dialect and the same support in the whole classroom and not just you know those three or four children that you might think well perhaps we better do something extra with them so you, you get it by way of default and, and the support mechanisms and then you can move on from there. When I was at school, I mean, it was a lot different, obviously. There was a lot more bullying and there was no social media, but there was physical bullying mm-hmm. where it was, it was just standard, commonplace physical bullying and, and, and emotional bullying. And I think the schools have got a fantastic program now where they have people in there that are qualified to look after them and identify children that are at risk. And I see it with my two children in Adelaide as well. Their, their support mechanisms are, are very good. And it's the same thing here at Cummins. And I'm sure it's the same at all schools because it's, it's a complex thing being a teenager. It's good to have a program like that because it's like learning to change a tyre. Like every time you drive your car, you don't get a flat tyre. No. But it's very helpful to know how to change it. So if you are stuck, you know, in the middle of nowhere, you can help yourself. Yeah. When you're educating the whole room or bringing awareness, I could say, then if one day you are cruising along and all of a sudden you're not cruising along so well, you can tap back into that knowledge and go, hmm, at that time, that wasn't something that that I needed to know, but now I can tap back into it and use some of those tips. And I think, you know, one of our catchphrases is life is a circus, but you are the ringmaster. The thing is, life is a circus. And um, I was listening to another podcast the other day and the lady on there said, everyone is going to have something happen to them. Yes pretty much impossible to avoid it because that's just life but it's how we react to that situation when we're put in it and I think when we can keep upskilling young people when they do come across these speed bumps then they're a lot more equipped to deal with it and each other I think if you're hearing the message at the moment it's not something that 
affects me, but maybe the person next to me is going through it and I can support them. Exactly. And I think that's key. We have been into the school a few times with the um, Our Town Cummins program talking to young people and one of the big things they kind of alluded to was that they're all having these conversations anyway. Mm. But whilst we pretend that they're not and try and bury our heads in the sand because we don't want to face that they could be going through some of this stuff, they are feeling like it's a dirty thing to talk about and so they're they're kind of shying away from telling their parents or their teachers if they're not doing okay. And one of the interviews that we did, a young guy said that um, he didn't want to worry his parents. Mm. Like, Which is sad. As a parent, would you, mm. you want to mm. be worried. Like yes. you would rather be that than have the flip side. Oh, yeah. So. That's sort of messaging that I guess young people, by us not having the conversations with them or making them um, a part of it and doing that education awareness and upskilling, is they think that they're not supposed to be talking about it or that we don't want them to talk about it. But a lot of these things are actually happening to them. I think they're more likely to confide in their, their small friendship groups as well, which is a way of coping, but you just hope that that group can then share the information if they need to, recognise the risks if it is serious and help further by passing the information on to someone else, whether it be the teacher or the pastoral care worker or someone else they can confide in to help get the process of help going if there's no help already. As I said before, you can go from being happy and healthy at 10 o'clock to being in a dark place at 12 o'clock. That's how quickly it can happen with mental health and that's what the health system is struggling with uh, right now is... The amount of people with complex mental health problems that are really difficult to, to manage. And you can argue all you like about funding and support officers and psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors and nurses, but there's too many people with the problems for the system to cope with. Yeah. And that's where I think, I think as a suicide prevention network, we come into, into play, is to be a, a part of the support mechanism, but lower down the rung to try and help where we can for people. Well, I can argue that because I think you're almost at the top of the rung. I always talk about inverting the pyramid. Mm. So the big bits at the top are actually friends, family, community, um, you know, SBNs. They're the crew that, you know, tap into them as much as you can because if you do feel connected, you're less likely to, to have Fall those. Down. Yeah, that's right. So I always think that's really important is that we don't always put those acute services at the top. We actually put ourselves... And mm, our good important point, really, people at the think top. About it like that. Yeah. Um, another hat that you wear, JT, is um, within the community working for the ambulance. Obviously, we don't want to hear any personal stories and we don't need to know what's actually the ins and outs, what's happening in the ambulance. But do you have call outs for mental health issues at all? Uh, we do, yes. Do That's probably what prompted me to change my thought process when I joined because I was ignorant to the fact of mental health or self, self-harm back then as a 30-year-old. I really didn't know about it or didn't wasn't aware that it existed and then I found even in little old Cummins we were going to patients with complex issues and the first time I went to a self-harm case I thought wow this is happening in my town. Mm. This is a person that's genuinely trying to self-harm. And it's not the first time it's happened. And it was a it was just a messy environment. And it wasn't just one person that was attempting self-harm. There was other complex issues within the house. How often does this happen? And as I got further into the ambulance side of things, and that gets reflected around the state, that mental health makes up a large part of the ambulance service workload, even in Low Cummins. And it's not so much, you know, patients threatening self-harm all the time. It's patients that might have something else going on, whether it's you know a heart condition or diabetes that then affects their mental well-being because yeah. it has it's a secondary effect. So they end up on medication for not only their diabetes or their heart failure, they end up on medication for their mental well-being. So it's it's those things that the rest of the community don't see or aren't aware of. You know, it, it happens at you know the d- dark of the night when no one else is around except me and my partner and and the person you're dealing with. And it, it's challenging at, at times, but I've always thought if you can make a difference to that one person at that one part of their life where they're struggling, it's a really powerful thing to do. And whether it's in ambulance or mentally fit EP or the school counsellor or whatever, if you can help someone when they're at that point to bring them up a bit rather than just carry them and let them go again, that, I think you've made a difference in it. Yeah, it's a good feeling to know that you can help someone. It's you know it's challenging at times being an ambo, and there's some things that happen that really do challenge you in your small town. 
because mm. you know most of the people you're dealing with and it's not only the effect it has on them but on their families. It, it's really, it's heart-wrenching at times to see what people go through. But I said we can be part of the system to try and get them help to, to get them better. I think seeing most of the people, time we do. Seeing people at their most vulnerable yep. and that's a, a hard place. And what about for your mental health? Like, Do you have a system in place or something in place to support yourself? Within you S- SAS, SAM service, we do. We really yep. do. We, you have, like, so if it's a challenging job, you've got your partner and then you've got a team leader above that sits above me that we talk to often and then we have what's called a peer support program. So if we go to an incident that triggers a few red flags in the system, we get phone calls from them mm-hmm. and we can access all the way up to psychologists and psychology visits that, that are funded and paid for by the service. So it's a big, they take it very, very seriously, the SAM service as, and health generally as, as people's wellbeing and how they look after them afterwards, especially if there's a major incident in the community. We really do get well saturated with help. It's been good. Yeah, that is good. Mm. Because, you know, the people who are coming out to help us in the ambulance, you want to make sure that they are being well looked after to be able to cope with some of the situations that they're faced with. Mm. At the end of the day, we're all human, aren't we? And just because we wear that green uniform or the police wear that blue Mm -hmm. or black uniform, you're still human, you still have feelings, Mm -hmm. and you've got to go home to your own families and deal with things. And I know I've been a bit tetchy at times after jobs and try and consciously think it's... I don't want to take that problem home to my house and cause another problem with wife or children or extended family because it's not their fault what we've done. There are some of the challenges, but there's been some fantastic outcomes as well of, of jobs when people have had good results and it's been fun. Have you ever delivered a baby? Not personally. I've been in the ambulance when a baby has been born, which is just hectic. <laughs> There's no other word for it. And it was a complete strange. It was a very funny story. I was doing a shift in Adelaide and the mother was 36 weeks pregnant and her husband had gone to Perth for a conference. Oh. And we walk in the door and she's full term about to deliver and she was just abusing her husband <laughs> for not being there. And then the step, the mother-in-law shows up and the other kid runs out of the bedroom and, and I was just the, the lackey getting towels and rugs and cloths and what else. And she delivered in the, in the ambulance. It was Really empowering, it was powerful, and and then another one, a lady delivered in home at the home for us. So yeah, it's good. It was, it's a special thing to be around. It really is. It's the most important moment in a mother's life, really, is to bring a child into the world. Mm. And I, yeah, don't, obviously with my own children, but for someone else's externally, where you think about other things that are going on, yeah, it's, it's fun. Yeah, and to bring, I guess, a bit of calm to what would be a bit. I, of I'll a guarantee chaotic. you, my heart was going fast. <laughs> we think, gee, I hope nothing goes wrong because we tr- we train a lot for emergencies, and you don't want to be involved in an emergency childbirth in the back of an ambulance, for goodness sake, or anywhere. So it's a relief to know that it's not an emergency, but yeah. it, it's a really powerful thing to. And I guess you don't know until the baby's out that it's okay. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I wasn't the lead clinician on either of the jobs. There was more senior people there than me, but it's still enough going on to keep it entertaining, for want of a better word. And the the, the grateful and the respect you get from the patients is enormous. It's It's really quite satisfying that you've been able to help them through that really difficult period in their time. I shouldn't say difficult, It's but childbirth can be challenging. Especially when it's not planned. She wasn't intending to have her baby that morning with her husband (laughs) 2,000 kilometres away. I guess that would be a part of being part of the ambulance service as well is when, you know, all the chaos does die down and and everyone gets to return to their normal life that you can, at at some points, you can actually reconnect with those people and and have that bonding moment like, thank you, thank you for helping me through. And that was something with Chris Blow's story. I really probably... One of my favourite parts of his talk was actually hearing from the paramedic. Oh, me too. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. She's, she still talks about that, Chloe. The yeah. other Chloe. Other Chloe, because yeah. her name was Chloe yeah. as well. Chloe's yeah. Yep. I found the same thing because very rarely do you get that perspective. Like, yes, we heard from Chris, but he also ha- didn't have some of those memories. No. And I think a lot of the um, the build-up of the – it sounds terrible, but the, the build-up of his story was – them going out and getting updates. Uh, it's a bite, but they didn't know what kind of bite. And then they were thinking, oh, spider, snake. Yeah, yeah. Animal bite. Yeah. All of a bad. sudden, it's a shark, you know, yes. and he's this losing consciousness. And yeah. yeah, like their process and how they were, they were one man down or something too, weren't they? Like one man they, up. 
They, oh, they had they? an extra. They had yeah. a third on that Which day. Which kind so. of saved him that day, yeah. didn't yeah. it? Having that extra person. Yeah. And I know when you go to an ambulance job, you talk about what you're going to. You've got a lot of information on your screen in front of you that tells you what you're going to. Yep. They would have had all that, but then you have the time to also talk about what you're going to do when you get there. As to how you're going to handle it, who's going to do what, what role each person's going to play. For mundane things, you can just wing it, as I say. But for serious things like that, they would have been speaking all the way out there, listening to their radio, getting the updates, working out when they were going to rendezvous with the patient and, and mm-hmm. go from there. But like I said, when they pulled up, he, Chris wasn't breathing and his heart wasn't working. So, you know, he's clinically dead. Then, here, deal with it. Mm. He, they get handed this 24-year-old man who's lost his leg and what do we do? They're still half an hour from their hospital. But it was just an amazing process of events that day that Chris was able to come to Cummins and share his story with us. Amazing. Really. And in positions like that, without them, he was never going to survive. So, you know, the ambulance rocks up. It's your best chance you've yes. got in that moment. So as an ambulance officer, do you feel that? Do you feel that? Oh, you feel a sense of responsibility as well. But it's quite funny. If, if you're in an intense situation, you don't think about it. You just do what your training has enabled you to do. Yeah. And it's not until you've stopped doing it you think, oh, wow, that was... Mm-hmm. That was interesting. That was hard, or I didn't do that right, or I could have done that better. Or you always think about it afterwards, but you always do your best and hope for the best. And do you have like a bit of a debrief process? Yes. How yep. that went? Yep. I think we should do that more just in everyday life. Mm. Debrief our day. Mm. What it's, went well? It's what important to reflect on it, and yeah, not so, and you don't challenge people on what they did wrong. It's what maybe you could do differently mm-hmm. next time, and and we do that with our kids or our grocery shopping and. Just day-to-day life. It's important to have a plan and have another plan. That's what we always talk about in ambulance. Don't just have one plan, have two or three. Because invariably, plan one gets changed on the way to the baby or the shark bite or the snake bite or, or whatever. So. And in most cases now, are you the team leader in that position? So if you're going out, you would be the one calling oh, the shots? Generally, yeah. yeah. It's not also all about clinical stuff as well. You have to do work out how you're going to get that patient from where they are to where you want them to be. And if they're heavy or awkward or if there's difficult access to get in and out of the house, you've got to have a plan for your scene as well. So it's really important to have a good team and and um, keep in constant dialogue with each other about how you're going to plan things and how you want things to go. And look confident. I know it's always difficult sometimes, but you also want to portray calmness to your patient and the patient's family that you're there to help them and that, you know, whilst things aren't going so well now, let's get you to a place where we can make things better for you and try and sell it like that, and especially with mental health, is, you know, we can't leave you here. Legally, we're not allowed to leave you here. So let's come with us now and we'll get you some more help. And that's part of the process. So for people who might be listening and thinking, oh, you know, I've had a few moments where I think... I could either write it out or I could call the ambulance, but I don't want to call the ambulance because I don't want to, you know, make a fuss and mm. all those things that we tell ourselves. Can you give us a little bit of information about what it looks like if someone was to call the ambulance? I guess alleviate a bit of some of those fears that people might be feeling. If an ambulance is called, an ambulance will go somehow from somewhere. So that crew has enough training to identify the problem and deal with it whether it's low-key dealing with it or it might be none of your equipment in your vehicle but just the information in your head and your ability to talk to the patient, calm them down, find out what's bothering them right now and then. And you may not even transport them to hospital. You might just have half an hour with them talking to them, pointing them out what other services are available at this hour of the day or the night or do you want to go up to the emergency department and sit there for another four or five or six or eight or ten hours? It's probably not ideal for your mental health. Or should we find a different pathway, which the ambulance service has now? They have different referral pathways. Or if, if we're battling with a patient you know, in the middle of nowhere and I'm worried about how it's going, I can actually talk to a, a mental health nurse in our communications team to say, look, this is what we've got. It's not clinical at all. It's this situation, I need some advice on it. And they can help me and help the person. Mm-hmm. They can even talk directly to the person, get involved with their caseworker, get involved with their GP or whoever to try and get an outcome that we all want. That's really good to know. Yeah, we've got, we've got little good support systems nice. in place with SAS. Yep. 
and we do a lot of our tra- when I first started we did virtually no training on mental health we didn't it was all about car crashes and heart attacks but now probably a third of our workload would be mental health related so a third of our training or more is mental health related as well. Wow, that's great to know. I think when we first started Empowering Lower Air, I said to you, we need to have like a mental health clinician that goes out with the ambulance, like someone who's fully trained. But to know that that is happening with all of the ambulance staff, that's even better. Yep, they do. And everyone you see that we have training on it. It's as as important to use your mouth as it is to use your your tools in, in the ambulance, really. It's easy to identify someone with a broken leg. It's painful, it, it's at a bad angle, yes, you deal with it. But it's what you can't see that you have to try and work out what's going on with the person and try and, you know, it's sometimes less is more as well. Don't ask 50 questions, probably two's enough, three, four, five questions, because they don't want to be hearing the same questions again and again. It's yes, they've got a problem, yes, they've called an ambulance and it's here to deal, help with you. We don't do lights and sirens for mental health patients because it's attracting attention, it's noisy, you don't need to do it. Just calmly drive there, go into the room without heaps of equipment and talk to them. Because mm. maybe that's some of the time it's all they need. And some of the conversations we have with just the people on their own are different to the conversations that person's had with their partner or their parents beforehand because they are prepared to tell us things that they don't want to tell their loved ones things. Or vice versa, we might get some information from the parents or the, or the partner that the patient hasn't told us about. We hear that a bit. Jeremy Edwards who he shares his story across our peninsula and he has shared it as part of our documentary and he was saying how his wife knew something was wrong but he wasn't open with her. And then when they eventually did go to the doctor together, he told the doctor that, you know, he was having some very serious thoughts and, you know, she was there hearing it for the first time. So that's another important point is to make sure you are telling the whole story so you can get the help that you need. Yes, and, and if, you, if you, without sounding crude, if you were clever enough to hide it from your partner, your husband or wife, then it is a complex problem then because you are hiding it from the person you trust the most. Yeah. And to me that's sad that you have to do that. So if you can confide in them, they're more likely the ones to get you the help, to start the help process. So it's my wife or your husband or your partner or your brother or sister that might be the one that, gets that little bit of information that says, hey, you know, they're not doing so well. Let's have a bit more of a discussion about this and see what we can do. Yeah. I'm interested to know too, JT, given that you're very well known in the community for the work that you do with Ambulance and also with Empowering Lower Air Suicide Prevention Network, do you get call-ups on your personal phone that's like, help? Well, yes, I do. And I think we all do. The thing that really hit it for me was probably 20 years ago. I was in a motel with my wife with two young kids and I got a phone call and I took it and my wife said, don't take that phone call, we've got to get moving. And I took it and I spoke to the person for 30 minutes and they were at a point where they were considering self-harm and they were sort of a friend, colleague of mine, but not close. And it threw me to start with and I didn't know what to do and I managed to convince my wife that what I was talking about had was serious and she just had to wait it out. So then it prompted me to follow up on the person and still do to this very day. But we've probably all got a list of people that we look out for and talk to regularly. I know I do. Text them. I don't, a lot of the time I don't even talk to them. I'll just text them out of the blue, ask how they're going, where they're at, what's going on. It doesn't always have to be that. It might be something to say, well done on this or can we do this or what's happening here and looking out for them or, or maybe even their children or their partner to see how things are going. And I think we have a bit of a responsibility. If we're going to put the hats on, we have to you know, walk the walk as well. And you can't just ignore them because I, I would hate to think what would happen if I chose not to do something or you chose not to take the call and something happened. You'd, you'd always question, you know, could I have done more? And Absolutely. Mm. It's the hardest step to take is the first one a lot of the time. Once someone has chosen to take that first step, quite often the journey gets easier because they've it's relief that they've shared the problem and been prepared to share the problem and all that pent-upness that they've carried for the last day, week, month, year is suddenly a weight off their mind. It hasn't fixed the problem though. So you know you've still got the problem. So we have then have to work through how you're going to help them and what level of intervention you get. I mean, sometimes I'm 
in in the wrong mindset to deal with someone else's problems, and I don't think it's a very big problem. I think, well, maybe I can handball that to Emma or to someone else in the group, or that they've got a closer friend than me, so let's try and work her out around a bit. And quite often the other friends will know that that person is having issues as well. Mm. It's the people you don't know that are having the issues that open up to you, and then you need to start from you know a lower base to say, righto, how long's it been going on? What have you been doing to get help for it? Let's get start the process. There are still enough support mechanisms around to help everyone, I believe. It's just getting them and getting the journey started, really. That's the hardest part is the first one I yeah. found with everyone. And I think it's important to know that it is confidential. So you won't share anything with us. We don't need to know what, what you've been to or conversations you've had. And Emma and I, we don't share the conversations either what happens is personal and it's uh. confidential and it's really important to understand that as well that um, we can all put you on to more supports with your permission but we're not going to go around and talk about um, what you've said uh. to us or, or what's happened and um, even though it's a small town thing people do have that perception we know people have that perception because when we put out surveys people have given feedback that they don't feel comfortable coming to Mentally Fit EP because they know Emma or myself. But, yeah, it's really important to know that what you tell us stays with us. Yep. And we, that's virtually one of the first things we say is whatever you tell me, I won't share with anyone else, but if you give me permission, I'd like to share it with the GP or the nurse at the hospital that we're going to get you to some extra help or is there someone else we can get involved. If You've got to build up a trust with them. They have to trust you. Uh, it's important to have a good sounding board that you can trust to talk about things. Yeah, I think that's actually, I don't know, even just in the last couple of years and, and prior. So I used to be a Bowen therapist and a meditation teacher and had my own business. And surprisingly, that's almost how I got into this space because of what was coming out in those sessions and not feeling very prepared for it and not actually having anyone in place to be able to have those conversations with and have that little debrief at the end. Yeah. And it did. It got it got too much for me at one point. So I think it's really important that when people are working in this space that they do recognise, you know, who are your people that it is safe to speak to and that will keep that information confidential you can actually go to places and um, pay someone an amount of money to do a debrief with somebody. Like there are services and there are things in place where you can do that if that's not available to you, but you can't carry that weight of everyone else's um, stories and information on top of you because it will start to push you down sometimes yeah. too. So it's so important to be able to talk about that stuff um, to get it out of yourself as well, I think. It is. One of my team leaders from a few years ago compared mental health to carrying a bucket of water around on your head. People keep on tipping water into the bucket until the bucket gets too full to carry mm. so it starts to spill so instead of letting it spill let's get other people to take water out of the bucket and help you carry the load and it's a really simplistic way of approaching mental health I think and one I've always remembered because I thought eh, that, that makes sense if we can lessen the load that people are carrying whether it be me or you guys um, it's a good thing and sharing problems is quite often a good way to do it I found yeah I like that yeah me too mm. Mm. And I've never seen it written anywhere or by anyone, but it's just really simple. And he said he has the same things as an intensive care paramedic working shifts in Adelaide where it is crazy. The bucket gets too heavy a lot of the time. So you need people to take the water out, not keep tipping it in. Uh, and it's a balance. It is, but it's important to talk about because, you know, you're down the street with your kids and people approach you. Yes, they do. Um, it happens to me all the time and I'm sure it happens to Lane. And sometimes you're not well prepared for it. But we work in this space and like you said, we wear these hats. So you make time for people mm. in, in that environment. But we have to also do stuff that looks after us. And I think, you know, by bringing in those people who like the Matt Runnels and the Maddie Kernos and the Chris Blows and all of those people that come in, we try and have that message of um, inspiration behind it so that people don't necessarily see a sad story at the end of it, but they see, you know, here's how people um, face challenges or face adversity and how they get through those things. So the end messaging is, is always quite positive. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're working in this suicide prevention space, you know, like listening to people's stories and, and sharing that, we always try and seek out how did you manage to get through those things so that we can always end with a, a message of, 
hope and resilience and and I think that's so important because if you're someone that's in a dark space you want to know that there is hope there at the end of the day and the darker the room is the darker it can get unfortunately so you need you can't do it on your own it's just recognizing that you're at a point where you do need help and I was really happy when this person all those years ago actually rang me I thought wow they've acknowledged and this is a macho male you know who's a friend Mm-hmm. decided to ring and I'm glad he did because I think he's a lot happier person now than he was 20 years ago. And I think a strong message that's coming through from you today is um, if you're not travelling okay, you know, reach out. It is very tough to do on your own so you've got people around you. Yes. Don't be afraid to ask for their help. No, that's right because you won't be judged. Not by me or you two girls. You won't be judged. There'll be people that still say the wrong things which is unfortunate but there's more help out there than... A lot of people realise sometimes, whilst it's not always accessible, but little bits of help are instantly available in our community from lots of good people. Yeah, which is great to know. We've learnt heaps. Thank you. And that's part of mental health, is we're always learning. We really are. It's it's a journey and uh, unfortunately it's not going to go away. It's part of our life and we all have to keep working with it. I definitely feel a sense of hope though. Like you said, it's not going to go away. Life is a circus, but there are supports around us and we just need to tap into them. Yes. And that's why we do what we do is to try and get that message out and that awareness out to people that um, there are places to go and people to speak to. And sometimes it might just be your husband or your wife Mm -hmm. and other times you might need a bit of extra support. And I think that's where the suicide prevention networks and the ambulance and your local GPs and stuff, you know, they're all available to you. So don't be afraid to reach out if there has been some difficult times. Yeah, exactly right. We are lucky with the services we've got in the town. I mean, we've still got a hospital. It's staffed by nurses. It has Mm. doctors available. If you're in a situation where you are worried about yourself or someone else, ring the hospital. If you do nothing else, go to the hospital. Self-present. They will look after you there and then. Thank you for your time today. It's all right. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mentally Fit EP and Me. We take this moment to acknowledge those who have suffered from mental health challenges and those who have experienced the loss of someone they love due to suicide. If this episode has raised any concern, please reach out to someone you trust or call Lifeline on 13 11 14, Regional Access SA on 1300 032 186 or Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. Thank you to Mentally Fit EP... West Coast Youth and Community Support and Country SA PHN for making this podcast a reality. Thank you to Soundright Studios for technical support and Joshy Willow for our groovy theme tune. You can find us at Mentally Fit EP on Facebook and remember, mental health is everyone's business.